WKCR HD. Maybe you're listening to WKCR.org 89.9 FM. Any way you look at it, we are bringing you the music of West Montgomery. I have the great pleasure of sharing the studio right now and welcoming back to the studio a great scholar of the life and work of West Montgomery and a fantastic musician in his own right, Rodney Jones. Welcome to WKCR. I am glad to be here, and you are too kind. Well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm very much in your debt, sir. I can't think anybody I'd rather be in this place with right now to talk about somebody whose work we all love and value. I'm curious when you got the bug, when, because you, I know this is something of deep fascination for you for a very long time. When did the lights come on? Uh, well, as a young guitarist wanting to learn jazz, uh, I took lessons from a guy here in New York named Bruce Johnson. And the first thing he did in our first lesson was told me, he told me, uh, you got to go out and get some West Montgomery records. You got to get some Grant Green records. You got to get some Kenny Burrell records, Kenny Burrell records and some Barney Kessel records. He said, if you got that, you got it all. And I did just that. Uh, there weren't, there were a couple of Bruce Johnsons. This is the this is Bruce Johnson, the guitarist. His father was the uh, guitarist with the Ink Spots for a while, but Bruce taught Vernon Reed uh, guitar. He taught Bobby Broom. He taught Ed Cherry. He taught myself. He was really uh, the guitar guru around New York City for quite a, quite some time. The guitar genius. Wow. And uh, so you listened to all those guys, and but did Wes emerge sort of first among equals? Or? Uh, I mean. The tone, <laughs> you know, we don't even have to talk about the vocabulary, the, the sound that he got, um, the feeling, the sense of swing. And actually, uh, you know, makes I think for me, even then there was a joyousness in his yeah. playing. Something, something was palatable that was such a, a joie de vivre, such a feeling of joy that I, I, it just made me happy to hear him, you know. Absolutely. You know, it's funny now, maybe listeners are sort of removed from... We have the music from the the person who was around, the, the touring entity, the person you might have heard, maybe interviewed, or even just, as you say, what comes through in the music that endures, that uh, there is a quality of um, something very familiar, and there's a warmth about it. There's something... It's entirely separate from the musical sophistication that he's the guy you want to come over to your house and hang out. Yeah. You know, and by the way, he plays guitar. You know, he's, <laughs> it's that kind of feeling. Um, yeah, it's it, it's remarkable. You know, his his uh, it was so genuine and so authentic that it could come through on a recording, just through the notes he would cho- choose and the way he would choose to play them. And so I was really impressed by that. I I I would sum it up this way now that um, there are a lot of people who play great music, and then there are, are these geniuses uh, where the music flows through them. Mm-hmm. You know, Coltrane comes to mind as someone like that. Charlie Parker comes to mind. And uh, they're not as, as common as one might think. You know, it, it, there are many great musical geniuses, but there's a certain quality where the music seems to just flow. It, it's through them, and they're participating in it, but it's just flowing out. And Wes always had that sense about him that uh, he was enjoying it. He was enjoying experiencing it coming out. And uh, it was new and fresh and exciting for him. 
And, uh, you know, I remember he, he did an interview uh, that you can, can see on, on YouTube, I believe, where he says, uh, the person says, well, you're a great guitar player. He says, no, I don't play guitar. Mm. And he says, well, the interviewer's like, what do you mean? He said, I just use it. Mm. He said, you know, I just, the guitar is a vehicle to play what I hear. I'm not a trained guitarist. I just let it come out, whatever I'm hearing. And, and that's evident. You know, fortunately for us, what he was hearing is divine in nature. You know, it's the, it's the nexus between what it is to be the best of a human and to have this magic flow through you. He's, he's got it all, you know. You're, uh, how old were you when you started seriously studying guitar? Uh, I took my first guitar lesson at eight. Uh, my first gig was playing with Pete Seeker at wow. 10. At 10. <laughs> wow. Uh, but I started playing jazz uh, in our, you know, and then I, I, I learned uh, James Brown's music and the Ohio players and the Parliament Funkadelics and all that sort of stuff. Um, but by the time I was 15, I was in earnest wanting to, to play jazz. And Wes Montgomery was the towering figure of the time. You know? Did you... You felt that magic just hearing him, and as you said, the tone. Were you trying to uncork what the elements of that were with this six-string piece of wood and metal in your hands? I mean, it was daunting because I knew that the notes that were on his guitar were on mine, <laughs> but I couldn't find them. You know, like, try as I wanted to, I just couldn't find them. Later, I would discover that, well, you know, that's because he's playing himself. And the only way I could find those notes in any form was for me to play myself. And then in that manner, I could strive for the degree of excellence and just be content with just being who I am in, in the time and place that I'm around. But yeah, I did, I did try to deconstruct that so much so that um, after years of playing with a pick in 1980, I gave up the pick for five years just to play with my thumb alone. And I did that because I said, if I'm going to do it, like I don't want to be an embarrassment to like West Montgomery you know, to his memory. Like I'm I'm the the guy you know I'm East Montgomery you know I didn't want to be that person you know, so I I, I spent five years really delving into what it is to play with the thumb and what I discovered is, it's not the technique, it's not the mechanics of it although those things are necessary. It's the soul of the person that's coming out. It's the heart. It's the love. It's the passion. It's the joy. And so I realized that, okay, so like Wes, I would just use the guitar to express those human qualities and those spiritual qualities. And that's what, you know, that's the road I'm still on now, you know, where I work very hard to play the instrument, but it's not about that. You know, it's not about what the notes are, it's about what the notes mean and where they land in the listener. And that's Wes's gift because his notes, for me, um, cut right to the heart. Mm. You know, it's just, I mean, it's brilliant intellectual like intellectually it's amazing but that's never the first thing that i i think of when i hear wes it's like you know it's a handprint on my heart when i hear mm -hmm. him play that's how it feels to this day and that's how it's always felt yeah. i think you know another thing that might be lost to the memory of a lot of listeners now or not available to them how enormously popular he was in his lifetime i mean he those records and it I'm going to back out for a moment and say that last set of music that you heard was recorded in a small club in New York in 1965 called The Half Note. It was down at Hudson and Spring, they, they tell me, a little before my time. And um, what we're going to be playing for the next few hours is all very much in that kind of parameter. But he's now recording for Verve, and he's doing the records that he's making don't sound like these gigs that we're listening to mm. right now. It's these uh, some very elaborate, real studio work, lush orchestration, and they were immensely successful. They were like huge pop records. He was he he really, in a true sense, was the the grandfather or the father of what became smooth jazz. You know, without his work, there is no George Benson's journey to the degrees of popularity that he had and and all of the people that followed playing smooth jazz. The whole genre was built. I mean, you listen to Bumpin' on a Sunset, and it's all right there. You know, it, it's all there. You know, Wes did what many jazz musicians do, is that he, he did what he had to do to appeal to a wide audience, and at the same time, he found a way to honor his artistic uh, sensibility. Fortunately for us, 
Um, and I was just talking to Russell Malone, the great guitar player. We were just chatting a couple of days about ago about this. Um, that um, his commercial recordings, quote unquote, I don't like to call them that, but his less live performances contain as much magic as the live things. It's just different. He adapted his genius to that format, and it was, you know, it's brilliant. And how you know it is, how I know it is, oh, you say, oh, that's simple, and it's simplistic, and it's dumbed down. And then, like, I say to a student, okay, it is? Okay. You play it, (laughs) and no one can play it. You know, if it's that easy, why can no one play it? Because he was... It was completely authentic and pure genius. You know, his genius would not be denied by the format, by the instrumentation, by the arrangement. It was going to come out anyway, just like listening to Bird with Strings. I mean, is that less than Bird with Dizzy live on 56th Street? It is not in any way. It's just different, you know? Is there a... Um, how do you compare the artistry of the stuff that flips out the cats and the hardcore? I mean, I just picture the audience... Walking in, nicely dressed, Saturday night, we're going to hear this West Montgomery. I hope he plays that song I heard on the radio yesterday while I was doing the dishes and tapping your toe. And But at the same time, he's doing things that people who are serious listeners or maybe musicians themselves are flipping out over. Mm. But he's satisfying both those audiences at the same time are, are they is there a... well I think I think context you know matters in in the sense that jazz was still more closely aligned to being popular music than it is now you know the the, the songs that jazz musicians played were the popular songs of the day if he West is playing you know windy or or you know a day in the life these are songs that were part of popular culture and he just did his interpretation of it. Um, in that time. Uh, so there was still a connection and a co- connectivity in that way. Uh, by the same token, for many people, they know what's hip by what they're told is hip. Mm. So if they say, oh, I'm going to go hear the genius Wes Montgomery, and the, the, more, uh, the more accessible music allowed the listener to become the genius because they could understand it. They could say, check out what I know. Check out this guy, Wes Montgomery. And they could understand it and share that Whereas, you know, if, if Wes is playing Milestones, maybe not so much. Mm. But at a point, they can recognize the genius. Um, you know, I, I, it's, a, I, it's akin to hearing a, a foreign language you know, that you don't natively speak. But still, you can tell when someone's speaking with passion. And you can, you can feel the, the intensity. And you can feel the rhythm of their voice. And you can feel the tonal inflection. And, and I think it's like that with, with Wes. But I, I think Wes probably... Uh, uh, did really well with finding a balance. I mean, George Benson, for example, in his live shows, does not ever play straight ahead mm. in his in his own shows. Now, in a you know in a um, you know he'll sit in all the time. West satis- I mean, George Benson satisfies that by playing with other people and sitting in and going to clubs and enjoying it. And he'll pick up his guitar and play you know the Living Daylights under whatever <laughs> right. he's playing. But in his live shows, he sticks to his format. Um, but it's a different time now. But yeah. I, you know, I think Wes is playing music that, uh, you know, his his pop records were accessible because people knew those tunes. For people who don't know, um, I want to come back to something that you mentioned that you spent five years after becoming enormously accomplished as a guitarist using a more conventional. <laughs> Thank you. Pick. May I quote you on that? You may right. absolutely. Okay. Thank you. Take that to the bank. You Thank can. You. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, we'll see how much. <laughs> I can probably ride to the bank. <laughs> maybe, maybe, but um, you, you. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, modesty aside, you were playing with top musicians in the world. You were recording. You were, you were, you, you done it. it. You would climb that mountain. That's true. And you set all that aside to, as you say, playing with your thumb. Um, I want to ask you. How, first of all, how different is that? It is exceedingly, exceedingly order of magnitude more difficult. Wow. Period. The end. Because the mechanics that are involved to really articulate that way, it, it's a different thing. You know, and, the, you know, generally speaking, the guitarists that play with their thumb today, it's, 
a really watered down. It's like you know people going to Riverside Park and playing football and saying, "Well, I'm like Tom Brady." No, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. You can throw a football, but you're not Tom Brady. You know, it's like that with with playing with the thumb. So I really, I really had to delve into it, and I found it to be. It required immense discipline and immense consistency. I had to work it, and you know, and be willing to progress at a centimeter a day for as long as it took to be able to to play like that. Um, and I never played like that. You know, my conclusion of I, I got really good at it. Um, there's only three or four of us in the world that can really do that. George Benson is another one, um, and uh, you know, there were others. Jimmy Ponder was someone who you know. But I, um, you know, I discovered that even after climbing the the Mount Everest of thumb, uh, again, <laughs> uh, yeah, again, even after doing that, Wes was on a different mountain. Mm. You know that that there was no substitution. I mean, uh, you know, I think part of being a great artist is to tell yourself the truth, to look in the mirror and tell yourself the truth. And for me, that truth was, I play really good. And I've got a lot of credits and I've done a lot of stuff, but I'm not kidding myself that I'm Wes Montgomery. I know that I'm not. I have, I'm me and I have other things to share and I, I'm in my own time. But when it came to playing with the thumb, the things he played were unattainable by anyone. Why? Because no one could be Wes, but Wes. It's his unique expression on the guitar. So that was, you know, that that's what it is. So. I'm... Sure, you know. I'm going to ask you anyway. Maybe some listeners know. Maybe they don't about how what we know about how Wes arrived at that, where his technique evolved from, and his fascinations as an emerging guitar player. Any of that? You? Yeah, I mean, and that was actually covered in this recent uh, documentary that was talked about. Wes's wife, uh, Serene, talked about that. I mean, the 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 working story is that Wes played with his thumb primarily to not keep everybody in the house up <laughs> while he practiced. So he was he could play softer with his thumb. And so that allowed him to to practice more and that he just found that he could do it. Likewise playing octaves, he used octaves to tune. You know, you tune one note and tune the higher octave and see if the guitar is tune. And while doing that he discovered I can kind of tune up pretty quick, which turned into maybe I could play a melody, which turned into, you know, I'm going to change the course of jazz guitar history. <laughs> and I love also the other, the, by the way, sidebar, the documentary you're talking about, I hadn't heard of till you told me about it about 10 minutes before we went on the air. This is a brand new. It's called Westbound. Um, it's, it, it is on an NPR station, WRTI, which is the local um, station in Indiana. And uh, it was uh, produced in association with Robert Anthony Montgomery, which is Wes's son. And it's uh, really a look, not so much musically, but just a look personally into his his life growing up, his family life. It was it was really useful to see someone so human and so like us that had this other part of him that just was transcendent and came out as this genius genius of music. It, you know, they they work together, but it's really fascinating to see the the, the contrast. Yeah, and I, I love what comes out of that too. That like, you know, yeah, we think of it as this vaunted abstract idea of how to approach the instrument it was like it was somebody's dad staying up late and you know and he he had like he worked as a welder i yeah, think and that's right married real young and yeah, started a lot of kids yeah. i think what made him the genius it's something I, I share with my students and it's a good object lesson for any listener you know what made him a genius was that he played the things that were he played the things that were natural for him to play and he he trusted that process. He didn't try to be someone he wasn't. I mean, he did, you know, he checked out other players and certainly Charlie Christian. But that very, was his guy, right? Yeah, yeah. But very soon afterwards, he then just said, like, you know, how would I play this? And rather than question that and doubt that, he just played it that way. George Benson the same way. I mean, George Benson is, an, is also on this Everest peak alone at this point, as far as I'm concerned. And, you know... It's, it's that, that, that game, you know, whoever plays the most like themselves when they die wins. Yeah. You know, and George Benson plays things that are the way he plays them. 
And so anyone that's trying to figure that out by playing it the way they play it is never going to figure it out. And if you try to figure it out to play the way George Benson plays it, you're not going to really do that either because you can't be George Benson. So the answer is to be the best version of yourself with as much excellence, devotion, and dedication as you can to bring that quality to whatever you do and to make whatever you do shine with the same excellence and, and, and shine of what Wes or George Benson did. And that, that's been my journey is to do that, to do the work so that what I present is, it's not about being better or worse, but it, it's at least as devoted, you know, that one could hear like this guy is like all in on what he's doing. And I am all in on it. I'm talking to Rodney Jones on the very day of the centennial of the birth of Wes Montgomery here on WKCR. We are going round the clock with nothing but music of Wes Montgomery and little little discussion in between. I'm your host right now, Mitch Goldman, here till 9 p.m. And um, if listeners are wondering, George Benson, you mean that guy that uh, I hear on pop radio? Yeah, that guy. That George, guy. George Benson, um, I can say unequivocally, having played with all the greats and knowing all of them, all of them, you know, I can say without hesitation that he is without question the greatest jazz guitarist as a guitarist I'm not talking music but as a guitarist that I've ever witnessed I've I have sat in front of him and literally it was like watching Art Tatum play piano it was like literally that I like with all my years of training Juilliard professor and all this stuff I it was pure, pure magic I still couldn't figure out how the rabbit came out of the hat like I could look right at it I could see there's the hat there's no rabbit and it would come out and I was like how how did he do that and you know, there are just those, those, you know, there are just those people who are are like that. I've been fortunate to know, you know, quite a few of them. I think Marcus Miller on the electric bass is like that, you know. Christian McBride, in many regards, is, is that kind of savant. And everybody, that's not their gift. Other people, you know, have a different thing. Everybody grows in a different pace. But uh, George Benson, the pop star, the singer, is, you know... Uh, is the only player in in substance that could equal the kind of contribution Wes Montgomery made. But George is doing a different thing. He's he's doing pop music and singing, so we don't really know if that's the case because we don't really have that other than his recordings with other people. Um, but George is alive, and uh, today he's uh, getting ready to celebrate a birthday where he'll be 80 years old. And uh, you know he's just one of the true musical geniuses. I've known a few. I knew Dizzy very well, and. Uh, you know, I've known others, but uh, Lena Horne is another one that comes to mind. But uh, George Benson on the guitars without equal for my for my money. I got to ask you because uh, you told me the other day a story about Lena Horne that I just thought was <laughs> gold. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a funny story. You know, I haven't I rarely told it, actually. It, um, you know, I had the pleasure of joining Lena's Lena Horne's band uh, in 1983. And I, I played with her till her death. You know, and uh, so one day I was at her home rehearsing, and I was, you know, I'm in her apartment, so I'm just playing with my thumb and everything. Like that and I play some intro. She said, "Oh, that's really nice." She said, "That reminds me of that boy." You know, you have to hear her in her southern like, drawl kind of accent. That reminds me of that boy, and I'm like, "What boy?" She said, "You know that boy played with his thumb from Indianapolis." I'm like, "You mean Wes Montgomery?" She said, "Wes, yeah, <laughs> yeah." Well, he was a nice man. He played very well. Whatever happened to him? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know, I didn't want to say, oh, well, he went on to become the greatest jazz guitarist of all time. I, I just said, you know, I said, well, Lena, he, he did very well. She said, oh, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad. He was very nice, and he sure could play. I said, yeah, he could. But everybody does say he was very nice. Yeah. Right? I mean, he was, he was a gentleman from Indianapolis, I mean, look at right? him on the videos. Yeah, you have you've seen anyone happier to play guitar? I haven't. <laughs> so true, so true. Well, we are focusing on our deep focus segment of this show on this period of 1965, and it's a really fascinating moment because he is emerging with the help of Creed Taylor, the producer, as this uh, well. Uh, command of pop radio and uh, the entire pop music world at that time. He's he's on the Verve label, and he's been recording for a number of years now for a couple different labels, and 
doing well in or in the jazz idiom, and now it's becoming this pop instrumental thing. And uh, he's touring, he's playing major venues around the world. But in New York City, um, he's doing what he always did in the clubs. And in one club in particular, something I didn't get to ask you about off mic, and I don't know if you know more than I do about the profile of this club that these recordings were made, the Half Note. I only knew the Half Note when it was on 52nd Street. It had moved and it was on 52nd Street, I believe, and I I, I knew it from there because I went to see Kenny Burrell and, and Grant Green. Um, I was 12 when, when Wes left the planet, I think, or 11 or 12. So um, so I didn't know it when it was in that other venue. What What is remarkable to me about the Half Note and Wes's playing at the Half Note is to think of the context of who else was alive and doing stuff. I think Wes is doing that at the same time when Miles has his quintet. Wes is doing that at the same time when John Coltrane is playing. I don't have to say any more than that. Just, yeah. You know, if you think that of the, that's what he was doing and, and that Wes was, you know, admired and revered by, I mean, Coltrane wanted him to be in the band, you know, and um, it just shows the level of, of genius and also the level of success he had because he somehow rose to the pinnacle of jazz guitar and then was able to rise to the pinnacle of, of really jazz pop star when there wasn't such a thing. Right. And it's, and it's remarkable. I mean, it's, it, it's just amazing that he was able to, to do that. And that he had the courage to do that, you know, that he, you know, he didn't, he didn't get fooled into like, well, I've got to compete and try to be the most creative person on the block. You know, he was creative. He didn't have to try to be that. He was creative. So everything he touched was creative. And so, you know, and everyone, I think he was content with being himself. And after all, I mean, that's Coltrane's magic and Miles's magic and Dizzy's magic. I asked Dizzy once, you know, when I, when I was in his band, you know, now that I think about it, it was such a bold thing to, to do to be 19, or 19 years old or 20 and say this to Dizzy Gillespie. But I said, you know, Dizzy, seems to me that you play a lot of the same stuff you played back in the 40s and 50s. <laughs> like you're playing the same like stuff. Like, why do you do that? You know, I said other people like Coltrane and Miles, they changed their language, you know, but you, you're playing the same lines, you know, and I meant it like, kind of like, <laughs> why haven't you grown, you know, kind of thing, you know, not even thinking like, well, you know, you want to keep a job, you probably shouldn't say that, you know. And he said to me without missing a beat, he looked at me, he said, you know, why mess with perfection? <laughs> you, you cannot. Which I now understood to mean like he was himself. Yeah. He had he had arrived at that pinnacle we we're all talking about. He was dizzy was doing dizzy, so saying don't do yourself for the sake of being somebody else is ridiculous. It was absurd what I was asking, and he nicely said it that way, you know, and, di- and didn't fire me, you know. Uh, so and and we all loved him for it. I mean, he was so kind, and and he loved Wes as well, you know, and he he allowed me to, you know live out my West fantasies, playing octaves on his gig and all kind of, you know, he, he allowed me to do all that. So I'm grateful for that, you know. Wow. Well, what what I've heard about the Half Note uh, was a club, there were a lot of jazz clubs around town, was on Spring and Hudson, I'm told. I think that building was still there until recently, might still be. Um, and it was the place, one of the places, was open late. They'd let the musicians walk in, the cats came to hear one another play there. It was, had maybe a little less formal kind of vibe. Like Smalls today. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Or even Zinc Bar, you know, um, which is another wonderful venue. Um, but I think of Smalls where a lot of the, not not the name musicians of the day so much, but the, the younger crowd would come and they all hear each other play and root each other on and compare each other and, you know, compete with each other. I think the half note was the place to be seen and heard. Yeah, and... Thankfully for us, there was a radio program. I think it was on WABC at the time. Alan Grant was the host, and you'll hear some. These are transcriptions from recordings of that. Thank goodness they exist. And uh, there's also Coltrane Live at the Half Note. There's a lot of uh, fantastic music recorded there. And um, Wes might be playing the Theater Champs-Élysées when he's in Paris, which he was during also in 1965. But here in New York, he's going to be at this little club on the corner. And, and how old was he then? 
How old was he? He was, well, he was born in March of 23. You're buying, you're, you're, you're playing for time while you figure it out. You're talking while you try to compute in your mind. I guess he's, what, he's 42, right? Um, I don't think he was 42. In uh, 42, 43, in six, 42, in 65. Was he 42 in 65? Well, he's born 100 years ago today, right? Yeah. So, yeah, he's, I think that's right, where, right? Well, let's I, see. If he's, he was born in 30, tw- 23. 23. So 33, 43, 53, 63. Yeah. Well, you're good. <laughs> you, should consider, you should consider doing this for a living. <laughs> you're, you're pretty good. Yeah. So, I mean, you think of the young age that he was. You know, that's like remarkable to be doing what he was doing to play all over the world. And, you know, unbelievable. Yeah, he had, he had the tiger by the tail. So it's February of 65. We're actually going back a couple of months from where we were. This is that last one. A lot of these recordings have been floating around for years, some commercially released, some not. Um, This one, I think, is one of the ones. Some of the stuff we're playing is I did not find in any of the discographies. If If you're a younger listener, say, under the age of 40, Tiger by the Tail is a colloquial expression, which just means he... You know, he had the world, and you know, <laughs> all the world, and by you know, he, he it just means he was really great. Yes, he was really great. <laughs> he was really great. After my, my children remind me when I say these expressions, they're like, you know, you're one step from Bo Do Do, twenty three skidoo. You're like, you're one step from that. I'm like, <laughs> what I said something, I said something, I said like, what's cooking or something, and somebody looked at me like, <laughs> yeah. have you seen the progressive ads? Yeah, right. Yeah, we're the, we're those people, Mitch. <laughs> to, to, if anyone that's listening under 40, we're those people right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, uh, yes, but here it is, 100 years after the birth of Wes Montgomery. His music is as vital now as ever. We're going to hear him playing in this little club late at night, and uh, he's talk about a killer band. He's got Wynton Kelly on piano, Ron Carter on the bass, Jimmy Cobb on the drums. Nobody good was available. Right no, now, yeah, the, the, yeah, the other guys were uh, yeah. doing uh, SO commercials. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but he got these guys. And, uh, yeah, anything you want to say about the selections or anything, or should we just jump I right mean, into it? I mean, the selections are, are sort of typical of what he's – known to have been playing during that time, but uh, anyone that's just listened to the, you know, the lyricism and the melodic sense and the rhythm, the rhythmic sense, uh, my guess is that they did not do a lot of rehearsal, if any, and it was probably no music. Wes did not really read music, as in sheet music, so it was probably more like, hey, you know this, and and they said, yeah, sure, what key? And and, and he'll say, oh, I'm going to do a little intro like this. It was that kind of talk through, but, you know, as they say, Jazz is a young man's music, young person's music, best played by older people. Uh-huh. All right. Well, it's uh, February 1965. You are listening to the West Montgomery Centennial Broadcast on WKCR. I'm your host, Mitch Goldman. I have the great, great honor of having Rodney Jones here in the studio with me, shining a bright light on the life and history and music of West Montgomery. Oh, go on. Oh, I will, I will, <laughs> until 9 o'clock tonight. And uh, let's go to the half note. Come on, we're going to get on the uh, C train and hop off down there. All right. So, West Montgomery Radio. That many of our listeners, of course, and the people who are enjoying the show here at the half note are waiting for, as we bring to the stage, let's have a big round of applause for Mr. <laughs> West Montgomery. Wes! I'm here. West, baby. Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? I'm here. Where are I? Where are I? <laughs> the uh, opening tune that we'll do will be around midnight. So what? You want to do so what? All right, we'll do that. We change it. We'll do so what? Okay, so what? West Montgomery with the Winton Kelly Trio. Right. One, two, three, four. 
West Montgomery with the Winton Kelly Trail. Yeah. What, what are we going to do now, Wes? You don't mind. We have a request for Mikosa. Sure, you play whatever you like. Mikosa. It's original. Okay. <laughs> Mikosa? Mikosa. Mikosa. Very beautiful thing. Yeah. What's our next tune, Wes? Blues. <laughs> yeah, a lot of blues. Probably take us out to the end of the show. Blues. <laughs>
a lot of blues. And we've been digging the beautiful sounds of jazz here on Portraits and Jazz, live in stereo here at WABC-FM, with the fabulous Winton Kelly Trio, with Jimmy Cobb and Ron Carter sitting in for Paul Chambers, and also the fabulous Wes Montgomery. See you walked in, Wes? Donald Byrd. Oh, yeah? Yeah, Donald Byrd just walked into the place. Yeah, there he is, Donald. <laughs> And Chuck Wayne here, too? Oh, yes. (laughs) Got some interesting guitarists here. We'll be back tomorrow afternoon with our jazz matinee show. Don't forget to visit with us next Friday for our live stereo remote broadcast, featuring, of course, Wes Montgomery with the trio and uh, Winton Kelly also. Until (laughs) tomorrow afternoon. I just want to remind you that part of the course of this stereo remote broadcast is portrayed by the Half Note Club, remote engineering by Sid Simon, Dick Sisk, and Ron Sim. This is Alan Grant. Until tomorrow afternoon, stay beautiful. West Montgomery, our opening tune is uh, Burks. Works. Burks. Works. Burks. Works. It works. Works, works. <laughs> West Montgomery.
Montgomery, West Montgomery with the Winton Kelly Trio. West Montgomery with the Winton Kelly Trio. It's gotta be West Montgomery. It's gotta be his centennial, the hundredth anniversary of his birth. We are WKCR FM, WKCR, I should say WKCR FM New York, WKCR HD One. Maybe you're listening to WKCR.org, 89.9 FM. Or maybe you're listening to the Deep Focus podcast, because in about a week's time from right now, we're talking about this. Uh, We'll put it up there. It's all free, ad-free. And uh, tell the folks, if you missed part of the show, you can hear at least this three-hour segment of it um, anytime you like on that Deep Focus podcast. And what this is, this segment, I'm your host, Mitch Goldman, and I have the honor you think I'm being a wise guy. I'm not of being here in the studio. I've got Rodney Jones here with me who, man, you have spent, uh, if Wes is turning 100 today, I think about half that time at least, Rodney, you have spent in study and... Reverence. Reverence, obeisance. Exactly. Of uh, all that is... West Montgomery. Indeed. And you've distilled that down to these gems that you're sharing with us tonight. I am I'm dead serious and enormously appreciative of you being here and opening up. I'm grateful to be here. I'm grateful for the the platform that you uh, have and the the platform that WKCR is to make this kind of programming possible. I mean it's 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 extraordinary and it's a it's an American treasure and I'm glad to be a part of it. Oh man. Well, well, enough of our mutual admiration society. Back to West. I'll send you the Venmo later. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Free coffee cake. There, yeah, there, that's it. There that's you go. It. And um, so it's 1965. Wes is uh, emerging as this pop entity, but he's bringing it home to a little half note club downtown. And this is before Soho was Soho. This is when it was still printing houses and uh, uh, what, what was down there from, that I remember from back then. was well, not from back then, but not too long afterwards. I'm sure you do, too. Um, there was uh, wholesale cloth and leather I was probably vendors. into Wonderama at that point, <laughs> yeah. but yes, I get Sonny it. Sonny Fox. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was our guy. I do the Sonny Fox show. When's his 100th birthday? And um, But uh, what are we hearing? What are we hearing? What's the same? What's different? What's the language? What are they? How are these guys sharing their ideas? You might have heard the host, Alan Grant, introducing Winton Kelly Trio. That's Winton Kelly with Ron Carter and Jimmy Cobb. What, what's going on on the bandstand? Well, I mean, you're hearing, you know, the quintessential um, rhythm section 
you know, the ultimate in professionalism and creativity and, and uh, you know, the chosen rhythm section of Miles Davis, um, which interestingly enough, uh, you know, Winton and Jimmy Cobb were part of that original Miles Davis group. And then Ron Carter became part of the quintet with Wayne Shorter and um, and uh, Tony Williams and Tony Williams and, and that, that thing. So it's an interesting time. Uh, and, you know, like I say, it's an interesting time to think of who else was, you know, walking around making music. You know, Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers are full on. Coltrane is full on. You know, Miles is full on. And here's Wes, um, you know, really, you know, stoking and, and demonstrating the continuing evolution of the jazz guitar. And there was no one at that time or any time that was playing with that kind of intensity, swing, focus, tone, lyricism, melodicism, chord soloing, octave playing. I mean, the list goes on and on, you know, and plus he was a great pool player. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah, he can play pool like no one else. You know? Why does that not surprise me? Yeah, I mean, you know. What do we know about that? Uh, just that there's video of him playing pool with his brothers. Wow. You know, and uh, he looked pretty, you know, I wouldn't say he's Minnesota Fats level, but <laughs> he looked pretty good. I believe it. I believe it. Now, uh, is he living in New York at this time? I don't believe so. I think Wes, uh, I think Wes is still living in Indianapolis. Um, I know that he briefly lived in California. Right. Um, but I think his family wanted to go back to Indianapolis, and that's what he he did. So I think he was probably here and, you know, doing whatever he was doing and then driving back because he didn't fly. Right, right. So he was driving back in his large, you know, jazz mobile car, whatever that was. and <laughs> I'm picturing him as like driving a station wagon, kind of like. Uh, I think it was more like, a, 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 you know, a, an Oldsmobile or an Eldorado or, okay. a, you know, Deuce and a Quarter or one of these big. Yeah. Well, he spent know. enough time on the road. He certainly. Yeah, uh, I think he he was in riding in luxury of the day. Very nice. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Because I, I ask because he seems to be spending a lot of time in New York and this seems to be kind of a home spot for him. There's recordings. Uh, you might know the Verve uh, album, Smoking at the Half Note. I might. Yeah. You might. They might. <laughs> you definitely do. Uh, that was, I think, May, June of this year of 1965. We have recordings spreading through just about the whole year. We're in uh, February. No, I'm lying. Am I lying? Um, yeah, no, you know what? Yes. No, yeah, I'm right. <laughs> We're in February. And uh, we've got recordings going up to November, December. All this one venue, the Half Note, I guess thanks to the fact that Alan Grant was doing these broadcasts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess it was good promotion for, for everybody, West right? For everybody, yeah, exactly. I, I think they were Friday nights, if I'm not mistaken. I remember looking that up once. That sounds right. Uh, and um, so, um, and what else, What what kind of, so you got this, Top shelf, diamond, platinum standard rhythm section, and um, what's taking place on the band? Well, stand? I mean, it's remarkable. Wes is quote unquote the untrained guy in the band, you know, who's playing at the highest level of uh, like anybody else that's there or or greater. And, and uh, it's remarkable, you know, he had reached such a pinnacle of of the art form and had such lyricism. Um, that, you know, I don't know how he personally felt, but he certainly did not need to be intimidated or in any way threatened by Miles Davis' rhythm section. He was like, okay, you know, I can, I know what to do with that, and he did. And it's remarkable, and I, I think it's beautiful that they um, they fell lockstep into, I mean, they could hear the genius. It was like, it was so clear and so beautiful and so, to use the term uh, of today, on point, so, mm-hmm. so musically perfect that a great musician could do nothing but want to lend their their heart and soul to that to make it happen and these are all you know Winton Kelly and Ron Carter and Jimmy Cobb are three players who uh, I didn't know Winton but I did know Ron Carter and, and Jimmy Cobb and uh, you know they put the music first they're not up there where it's about them they're up there like what's going to make the music sound the best and that's why they're you know the rhythm section of rhythm section of choice by so many um, and you hear them supporting Wes in a beautiful way and Wes is at ease with what they're doing, and which was a lot considering he started playing with his brothers, and then he played in you know organ groups, and you know here he is with this rhythm section, and like right at home. People, some people, 
people who don't know, um, might think of certain things that have become cliches as uh, that Wes is known for, that, that he developed, that he used. But I'm wondering if you could talk about the breadth of Wes's musical language. I mean, it's, it's amazing. I, I can tell you that um, chord soloing, for example, had never been done like that. Now that's, now, that's not to say it hadn't been done. Barney Kessel, one of my all-time favorites, is a brilliant chord soloist you know, for jazz guitar. I mean, masterful. But not like that. That's a little different thing. The way that it's used, uh, it's, it's, uh, Wes's approach is almost like he's playing a big band. You know, he's playing, he's punctuating and, and accompanying himself in a way that is so rhythmical and so swinging. It's like, a, it's like Quincy Jones wrote a big band charter. Frank Foster wrote it, and he's transcribed that for guitar. Um, and then the octave playing, though, here again, octaves had also been played, but they'd never been taken to that level of, of facility and dexterity and swinging. You know, if it was just mechanics and it was like someone could do that that quickly, we'd be like, wow, that was an amazing innovation on the guitar. But that's not the thing that comes to mind. What comes to mind is what amazing music, what a great feeling, how much, how lyrical it was, how much it was swinging, how much you could feel it. So when you combine that degree of technical mastery um, and then his, his melodic phrase, and he plays the language of bebop, but in a very personal way and deeply infused with the blues. Um, and, and then, you know, take all that out and say, well, okay, let's listen to the tone. And there's no pick in the world that can make it sound like that. There's no, I, I mean, I have every pick in the world, <laughs> you know, and there's no pick that can generate that tone like that. Um, one, for most of us mortals, mortal guitar players, you know, well, we say, well, I'm going to, I can play a ballad with my thumb or I'll play something, you know, nice and slow with my thumb and I can make that happen. But Wes is playing the full range and breadth of the instrument and the vocabulary with his thumb, which had never been done before at all. So, and he's playing that primarily with two fingers, Django Reinhardt style. A little bit three fingers, but mostly two, wow. which is not known, just the first and second finger. If you watch videos, it's impossible. You know, <laughs> I think Wes, Wes, the things that were difficult took Wes a little, little bit of time to get together, and the things that were impossible took him a little longer. <laughs> it's we're 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 just relishing all of it on this centennial birthday broadcast, and um, now we're going to kick it up a notch, as we, they say. We are. We're going to go to the next level. We are. Uh, you might want to pull the car over to the side of the road, uh, <laughs> turn turn the, turn the burner off on the stove, uh, <coughs> put down that racing form, and um, you did a little homework. Well. Let me give you the context of this, what's going to happen now. So, you know, for guitarists and guitar enthusiasts, there is the holy grail of finding anything that's unreleased by Wes Montgomery, or even rarely released, you know. If you can't find it unreleased, if you can find something that's rarely heard, that alone is extraordinary, you know, because it's brilliant. And it's like, you know, it's like you... You found a treasure. You're a regular listener to Deep Focus. You know I don't just talk stuff for the sake of saying it. But have we done that? Oh. Oh, we have done that. What Rodney's talking about here. What you're about to hear is unquestionably one of the great landmarks of my broadcasting career you tell me what you think when you listen to part two it's coming up this show is march 6th 2023 2023 rodney jones on west montgomery it's three parts to this podcast you just listen to part one if you do want to get in touch well you can find us at deep focus now at gmail.com deepfocusnow at gmail.com. I hope you've subscribed to the Deep Focus podcast. If you have, I hope you've liked us up. Give us some thumbs up, and I'll tell you why. Uh, that's what we ask. Uh, you know, you don't hear any ads or sticking our hand out for money or anything like that. It's a little bit of putting something in the pot so other people can find the show. It's all free. It's just driven by love. So, Give a little love, and you get some love, and spread that love. 
more people feel it. Oh, that's a wonderful thing. And check out what's coming up here in part two. It is something else.